Joy in the morning, John 16, verses uh, 16 to 33. And in the, the midst of this passage, Jesus uses an illusion that is used quite often through Scripture. Paul will use it. Peter will use it. Isaiah will use it. Jeremiah has used it. Micah uses it. It is really prevalent throughout all Scripture because it is, it is something that every one of us experienced. We were all born. And of course, the Christian life is one of being reborn, as, as we just saw there with Nate. Uh, but, but this experience of birth that, you know, whether we knew it as we were being born or not, is one that is a real contrast of a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of rejoicing that all goes together. And, and I'll be talking about that. And then I also recognize that you know, while, while Jesus does use this illusion, we have even probably in our, in our midst more than a, a few families that have had real difficulty, even with it, whether it be conception or whether it be with birth. And uh, please, please know that even while we do go through this, that my goodness, that in no, in no way makes us forget about everything that, that you all have, have wrestled with. And even as we look at the joy that comes from mourning, uh, to, to recognize, praise God, that it is all based here, not on childbirth, as Jesus says, but on something so much greater, on our rebirth, that really gives us the, the great wellspring by which all of this has the proper perspective. And Jesus begins this in verse 16. But, but know that we have, as a church, been studying this now. And from chapter 14 on, there has been an intense discussion among Jesus and his disciples. It occurs at the Passover Seder, at the great meal, which is a meal that kind of brings together your Christmas Eve dinner, if you happen to be from Lithuania, uh, the, the, your grandmother's birthday, uh, all of the biggest meals of the year, Thanksgiving dinner, all of that all wrapped up into one, and then multiply it by a hundred, and you have the Passover. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't celebrate that Passover with his family. And, and imagine you deciding, well, you know what? I got these guys that I hang out with in my Bible talk, Mom, and I, and I know it's your birthday, and I know it's Thanksgiving, and I also know that it's a family reunion, and, and I'm glad for all of that, but I got these guys in my Bible talk, and you know what? I'm going to hang with these bunch of single brothers tonight. Uh, think of how that would go over, but think of the honor of these men as they sit here knowing that Jesus has chosen to have this special moment with them. And during a Passover Seder, there is tradition, and you can read, read about it all throughout Exodus and, and uh, Leviticus and Numbers, that there is this back and forth of discussion that occurs where the, the father in the family begins to teach the children all about God's plan of redemption. And all about the exodus in the Passover. And now Jesus taking on that role now teaches all about the ultimate deliverance. And the disciples play the role of, in, in a sense, the children. Because in, in exodus, the, the children have special questions that they are to ask to be able to elicit the, the, uh, the teaching that would come from the father. And so here Jesus is bringing from the father the most important of all teaching. It has been going on for all these chapters and now all these things, as he'll talk about this in, in the middle of this, all these things are brought to a close in what we're about to read here. So let's go. Verse 16. Jesus went on to say, in a little while, and that phrase will pop up a lot, in a little while, 
you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you'll see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. Now, let me just pause here because I'm not, not actually in the points going to be talking about this whole confusion that the disciples have of in a little while, you'll see me no more in a little while. What do you mean by in a little while? Well, you know, of course, we understand because hindsight is 2020 that from from that 2020 hindsight. And, and by the way, verse 2020 uh, likewise has the ultimate uh, 2020 hindsight in the Bible here. Look at it some other moment and you'll see that, hey, now they get it and they rejoice. But but uh, we we get that what Jesus is talking about is that just a few hours from now, he's going to be crucified and he is going to be buried and he will be hidden from their sight. But then just in a little while from that, boom, minds blown and the Lord is resurrected. Jesus is restored to them and everything that they thought they understood has to suddenly be recategorized in their brain. And especially the whole idea of Messiah, the deliverer, the Christ. And as they are trying to find categories for the stuff that Jesus is saying, how can a conquering Messiah go away if he's going to conquer? How can that be? And, and how could, in, in some way, someone die, be a conquering Messiah? None of this is kind of fitting together for them at all. And it will remain a very difficult thing for them to grasp until the visual aids are brought right before their very eyes. So in the, in the middle of all of this, now Jesus continues his teaching to them. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask. Oh, so I'm sorry, verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn. While the world rejoices, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And, and I, I love the way that Jesus puts that. He literally says there will be a metamorphosis of your grief. He uses that Greek word. There will be a metamorphosis of your grief as it is radically, divinely, sublimely transformed into actual joy. Uh, it won't be that you just kind of pave it over with joy. It won't be that you just kind of forget it and suddenly supplant it with joy. No, the very intensity of this grief that grips your soul will be m beautifully reshaped by everything that will become truth for you. And suddenly it will become your greatest joy. And then he goes on to, to give the illustration. Verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice. And as a matter of fact, that, that very thing does, does happen in, in verse 2020. 
I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, and when he says figuratively here, uh, the, the word is, is the entire kind of genre of parables, riddles, allegory, metaphor, cryptic speech in different fashion. John actually never uses the word parable. Uh, he uses this word, which is a, a similar word. But, 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 but it is the, the whole idea that, yeah, I, I, I've been talking in a way that is not super clear to you. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention that a little bit more in a moment. Uh, but but in, in doing so, he will now actually have opportunity to make these things plain. So he says, though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the father. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe, Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come. You're going to be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. You know, you know interestingly, in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six. Where Jesus says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, it's, it's interesting that while he's quoting Psalm 22 there, he also has a deep understanding that we see right here that his father does not leave him. He says, yes, you may all leave me, but my father, no, he is always with me. I have told you these things. So that in me, you may have peace. In this world, you'll have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus gives a bit of a primer here on joy. And on a, a, a joy that seems to be rather profound, rather interesting, rather really confusing. Because of the events that are about to unfold. Now understand this. We're just hours away right now from the soldiers barging into this love fest that they're all experiencing, busting the whole thing up, and the disciples distraught, wondering what just went down as Jesus is being taken away in shackles and about to undergo a radical torture and butchering and a shameful humiliation in public view before all people. It's, it's in this context that all of this is Jesus's last attempt to be able to really instill among his guys these beautiful truths that he that he lays down. Uh, and, and as we look at joy, I want to look at, well, let's go with three points. How's that? Let's go with three points today on, on joy. And my first point is joy. I'm sorry. Sorrow is not the opposite of joy. 
or sorrow is not joy's opposite. And what do I mean by that? Well, you know, when you think about love, for example, you know, the opposite of, of, of love is not necessarily hate. Uh, really, the opposite of love, the, the opposite of love is not anger, but, but the opposite of love is really something more ugly. It's just indifference, absolute indifference to, to, to someone else. The intensity of sorrow speaks to the intensity of joy. The intensity of anger speaks to the intensity by which you love someone. And there is something going on that is in kind of a dance between sorrow and joy, because whatever is in view matters that very much to you. As Jesus is about to undergo something rather intense, he uses this illustration of a woman in in, uh, childbirth. And he says that she forgets her pain in birth, but her pain does not go away. Uh, I've got my firstborn here, and uh, remember that, that that childbirth rather well. It's you know always you know quite quite intense, and you know sitting right next to Zach is is Caleb, and I remember Deb as she strained in labor for for Caleb, and she reminds him of this every day, uh, but. But I, but I also remember, as she did, I, I remember just being so very impressed with Deb d- during that labor because I could tell this this pain was off the chart, but there was just like a doubling down of determination that was going on. And, and also, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't doing things that Lamaze teaches you that turns out to be incredibly annoying uh, during that time as well. So I was kind of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of gauging whether breathe was the, don't you, I know how to breathe. Like, you know, whether to, to go there, to not go there. So I just realized that, whoa, she's got this. I'm just going to be here for a bit of support and just be impressed at the way that she is embracing this pain and realizing there's something on the other side of this that is driving her through through this pain and that something on the other side was this beautiful bouncing baby Caleb and and the, the celebration and the and the joy that, that that all came but but you know even with that it it wasn't as if all of that pain went away now, by the way, we're discussing this in today's experience of childbirth. When, when you know, verse 21 was written, a woman giving birth to a child, this was written B.E. Before epidural. Yes, exactly. There was no Clayton Walker hanging on, getting ready to, to help you out at, at that moment. Uh, there, there was just you and that baby. And a piece of leather strap, I guess, that was going to provide some sort of comfort along the way. But, but even, even after Caleb was born, it wasn't as if, wow, magically, we now remove all pain and all of the fallout that, that occurs from the childbirth. And as a matter of fact, there were other complications and long-lasting uh, complications uh, f- from all of that. But it was all brought into a, a very beautiful perspective every time that we looked into to Caleb's eyes or kissed his cheek or you know, cuddled him and loved up on him any way that we could. Um, and 
And the reason that I think this is important is because many people come to church, sometimes in the midst of crisis or pain, looking for comfort. And, and really what they're looking for is nothing much more than some sort of therapeutic deism. Uh, and hoping that somewhere in, in God, there'll be a comfort that is able to eclipse the pain that is gripping the midst of their life. And, and that pain may be a, a broken relationship. That pain may be that all of the goals that you had built on your career have suddenly come crashing down. The pain may be that uh, all that you kind of had counted on in your own health has suddenly been dismantled and you don't know what to do. The very ground on which you felt was a firm foundation has been upended. But when you become a Christian, you get a joy you never had before, but you actually suffer more too. And when I became a Christian, I became both a happier and a sadder person. And I think the reason is, is that when you become a Christian, as Jesus seemed to say to his, to, um, Nicodemus, way back in the beginning of this gospel, is that I think Jesus was alluding to the new birth and alluding to Ezekiel 36 to Nicodemus when he says, I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And the Spirit will do this very thing for you. And I, I know that happened for me, and I, and I know so many of you, as we've had experiences together you now experience those things, not through a heart of stone, but through a heart that feels so much more deeply. Yeah, the highs are high and, and the lows are lows, but, but through it all, there is a perspective. And Jesus, likewise, has been weeping through much of the last few chapters. When Jesus, just within the same week, John 11, there's twice that Jesus is sobbing intensely as captured by John's gospel. And then we also know that just a little while after that, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem and the crowds are singing his praises, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, rather than take all of that in and say, yeah, I'm the man, Jesus just looks at them and begins to weep and thinks, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I wish to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you wished it not. And Jesus weeps, even in the midst of triumph. There is great joy. There is great sorrow in our, in our Christian walk. Because things matter more. Okay. Things are deeper. You know, I, I celebrate all the great stuff that's going on in my, my kids' lives. And, you know, so fired up about Zach and Rebecca and our, our new grandchild. But really, the, the, the greatness of, of, of all of that is, is, is eclipsed because I know that they've come to know Jesus. And that, that matters so very much more. And, and, and yes, while they may have a, a faith battle that causes me to go into turmoil like nothing else, uh, they also have faith triumphs that also calls me to soar like nothing else. Okay. Uh, that, that, that our son Caleb is off at university and, and is connected with our fellowship. By far, that's the thing that Deb and I are like, thank you, God. <laughs> thank you, God, that, that that transition so far has been, been, been really uh, 
profitable and positive. Uh, and, and yeah, he, so he got A's. Ah, whatever. Yeah, but he's connected. He's connected in fellowship, right? I mean, th things are now seen through a different lens that um, really do cause us to experience the world differently. I remember the couple that reached out to me and baptized me, the, the wife, who happened to be Drew Mines, leads our church in Charlottesville. It's Drew's mom. And I remember Drew's mom not being able to come out of her house. We were neighbors. Not being able to come out of her house for like a day, two days. Why? She was so deeply grieving over a dear friend of hers who decided to no longer follow Jesus. And I remember I was a very young Christian and I thought, wow, like, really, like, it, it, it affected you that intensely? I, I guess I didn't know. I never had any experiences like that yet. I was just kind of new and everything was kind of cool and fun and I could clap on beat almost divinely. It had eluded me up until the day I was baptized. I was like, wow, yeah. Look at that. Syncopation, how oh, I got that. But, I mean, that's all that I knew. But, but then I began to also know sorrow. And, and you know, within... The first two years of my life as a Christian, I also knew greater sorrows than I had ever known in all my life. And in those sorrows, more than eclipsed all the other sorrows that I had experienced in the previous 29 years of my life. Uh, and at the same time, in the midst of that was an abiding joy that guided me as a North Star through every one of those experiences. But let me put it to you here, if, if God has not given you this heart of flesh, if, if, if it is a heart of stone that is somehow allowing you to make your way through trouble, you're not a Christian. You know, you know how I expressed my heart of stone prior to my Christianity? Not with stoicism, but with lightheartedness. I was always the life of the party. I was the happy guy. I was externally happy. But all of that was simply to mask rather than to embrace and to understand and experience and to be profited by all of the depth of what was really meant to be life for me. And so maybe, maybe you're able to just deflect what life is really trying to bring your way. Deflection is not what God really has as your destiny. He wants you to drink deeply of life. And that you will have life to the full, John 10, 10. True life to the full and, and not a life where you're just able to kind of quickly be able to duck and dodge uh, from, from any of the other issues that are meant to really hit us squarely. Where we experience it, we are disciplined by it, we grow through it, we understand Jesus a bit better. You know, Jesus, it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning its shame. Amen. That is interesting, isn't it? That it was for joy that he endured the cross. What was this joy that was on the other side of childbirth for Jesus? I mean, was he going to be closer to the Father? He couldn't be any closer to the Father. Uh, was he going to have greater achievement? He had full righteousness. What was it that was on the other side? You know what was on the other side? You. Okay. You. You are the new birth. You are the children over which he rejoices. As a matter of fact, even in creation, it says, I'm going to read from Proverbs 8. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, 
Then I was beside him, beside him as he was rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in the children of men. That's God's heart for every one of us. And even after the fall, it's still his heart. And it's why it's Jesus's heart of delight to go to the cross so that we could know the ultimate joy that comes from that too. I love what Zephaniah says. The Lord takes delight in you and he will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that what a parent does to a child? That's, that's who you are. That's why the cross was worth it. That's why the pain was worth it for Jesus. Why? Because as you sit here now, you're worth it. You're that delightful child. You're what made Jesus forget the pangs of childbirth. Your new life, your eyes with the scales having fallen from them, your new intimacy that you have with the Father, all of that is what made this the joy set before him. Even as he went right through that pain of childbirth, that cross with the determination that he had. Now, secondly, Jesus' joy, Christian joy, is unshakable. Now, I, earlier I said, sorrow is not the opposite of joy. What the opposite of joy is, is hopelessness. And the beauty of joy is that it is grounded in hope. The reason that the disciples are so full of joy, Jesus will tell them, is not because they have embraced a construct of philosophy that allows them to always say, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Behind every cloud is a silver lining. It's not because they were going to learn a bunch of aphorisms. The reason that the disciples' joy was so rock solid and so unshakable is that it was based not on a philosophy, but on a man. It was based on Jesus. It was based on Jesus and it was based on a historical event. Some of you said to yourself, should he have said an historical event? Properly, you say a historical event. Whenever the H is sounded in English, you say A. When it's not sounded, then you say an, by the way. But it's a big debate a lot of people have. I just thought I'd throw into it as well at this moment. For no good reason, really. Uh, Jesus, says, Jesus says in verse 22, So with you. Again, so with you, just as with a, a, with a mother who has joy, so it will be with you that I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Unshakable, right? Those dudes saw Jesus. They saw risen Jesus. I mean, it's, it's the very passage where Jesus says, go ahead, Thomas, go ahead. And, you know, he's sticking his fingers into the hole, sticking his hand into the scar on his side. It's like, it seems pretty graphic. But Thomas has come away from that saying, unshakable. It's, it's all true. It, the dude rose. Not only is he mind-blowing in his love and his power and his insight and his wisdom and his boldness, selflessness, humility, the dude rose. All bets are off. Anything that any of you want to try to kind of bring our way, forget about it. Why is it that these doubting, my, my goodness, uh, 
weak men suddenly go from scattered to unified, rejoicing, and world changers. Why? Because they had a security, a certainty, a faith, and a joy that was not based on holding on to some positive thoughts. It was based on historic good news. The gospel. It's the truth. It happened. And, and that's the beauty of, of our religion. Our religion is not a religion of being able to have certain philosophies that we are able to embrace and synthesize and coordinate. We just need to know this. Jesus is Lord. And he rose from the dead. All bets are off. It's just so clear. And he wants a relationship with us. Praise God. And he loves us. Holy smokes. And I love him. And, and the more that I it's all the more. And, and there's joy in the simplicity of that. And he, he says to them that see me and you will rejoice. But by the way, keep your, your finger there and just look at this path, the passage that I keep referring to. Acts 20, verse 20. I'll start at 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Boom. The, that's enough. What, what else would you need? He was dead on a cross. We all saw it. Buried. And here he is. Scars and all. Love triumphant. Even in death. Right before our very eyes. Wow. How, how, how astounding is that? And so for, 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 for us, I, I think what we've got to recognize is, is that our joy is based on Jesus' hope. Christian hope. And, you know, if, if we're, if we're going to really have the full impact of hope in our lives, we've got to keep reminding ourselves that the modern definition of hope is light years away from every time the word hope is used in the Bible. Hoping that the Cowboys beat the Redskins today, if you're so afflicted, is absolutely weak sauce version of the word hope. Right? Because it has all sorts of possibilities and shifting shadows and hedging of anticipation that goes into that. None of that is in the word hope in biblical use of it. When the Bible uses the word hope, it is rock solid, ironclad, watertight, guaranteed. It is that deep of a concept. Hope is an anxiety abolishing, joy injecting, perspective piercing certainty of future events that makes perseverance little more than prudence. It is so clear and so certain and so unchanging that it shapes the way you live now. That's hope. Keep that in mind. That is the great basis of our joy, is that our hope is that certain. And with that certainty comes an unshakable attribute to it, 
And praise God that that is the hope that we have. Now, one last thing, though, and that is that this joy that Jesus posits is a joy where he says, check it out. Or my third point, Jesus' joy invites investigation. Because at the end, the the disciples say, hey, you're talking clearly. Uh, Now we believe. And Jesus is like, yeah, sure. You're going to run away. You're like... We're like four hours. Let's start the clock now. Hey, now I believe you're going to run away in just a little bit of time. But, however, I've told you all these things so that eventually you will look into them deeply and you will come back to the joy that you now have. Uh, and, and also, by the way, you know, a lot of people say, why, why wouldn't Jesus just speak plainly to his disciples? And what about Mark, is it 4.33 or so, where it says to everybody he spoke only in riddles, only in parables, only in metaphor. But to the disciples, he explained everything. Now, Mark 4 actually says this. When he was alone with them, he explained everything. Now, I'm not sure if that meant as he went or maybe even as he did so, they still didn't have the kind of compartments in their mind for a Messiah that would die and rise. And so maybe some of that still wasn't able to land. But, but here's another interesting theory, just as a side note on this, before I finish this point and sermon, is that maybe Jesus needed to be purposefully cryptic. Again, we get it from our perspective, and, and all of this from our perspective gives us great faith. But along the way, he needed to be a bit cryptic, a bit vague, a bit veiled, in what he was saying. Why? Because he also needed to make sure that Satan was completely duped. And if he was too plain, then maybe Satan might have realized, whoa, in my arrogance, thinking I could take down the Son of Man, I realized that I am mistaken. And so I'm not going to be party to the ultimate redemption, and I'm not going to contribute to everything that happens in redemption so that I won't allow all y'all to be ransomed by the blood of the Son of Man. Right? And, and, and that is, I think, a very interesting idea. That Jesus, only after his resurrection, with the guys, alone with the guys, began to teach them very, very plainly. By which they were then able to write the Gospels with perspective. And which they were able to write all of the letters with ultimate insight. Because it was during those those days after Jesus had been resurrected, that he gathered his guys and spent all of that time with them, being able to impart upon them the great truths by by which they would know God's ultimate plan of redeeming humankind, which has now been brought into uh, fulfillment. And, And Jesus, of course, triumphs over all the evil powers, over Satan, Colossians 2.15 says this, triumphs over them through the cross and hells them up in public display. Of their defeat. While he is held up in triumph. Uh, And again all of that needed to happen. And I think there's this kind of vagueness. That goes on up until that point. But nonetheless. Jesus says. I have told you these things. Verse 33. These things. He's not just saying the last couple sentences. I think he's saying everything that we just experienced. At this Seder. At this Passover dinner. All of this final teaching. I have said all of these things, even all that I've taught you along the way in my ministry, all the things that I will teach you even later. I have told you all these things so that you can have peace. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of trouble in this world, 
But take heart. I've overcome all of that. But if you want to have even greater joy, greater peace, greater excitement, then check it out. You know, Christianity only gets better the more that you investigate it. Christianity only unfolds the more that you embrace your doubt and bring it to God. The more that you try to sweep it under the rug, ignore it, uh, the more that that's going to come back and bite you. The more that it will leave you unsettled rather than deepened in your joy. The more that you look through and recognize, wow, God had a plan not only to shape all of world events to bring about the cross at just the right time. And he could do that on a grand meta scale, but he did it also on an intimate micro scale in your life as well. God arranged that, that Ryan would be walking across campus at, at just the right time, smack, to be hit upside the head with a two by four of love at just the right time. God arranged it that some of you would end up in just the right families. Why, why did you have to grow up in the teen ministry? Maybe because you were just so stinking hard-hearted that if you didn't have every chance from birth to be reinforced with Jesus stuff, that maybe that was the only way that it was going to work out. You know, God arranged all of, all of that despite our indifference. Despite us maybe growing up in church with our arms folded. You see him there? Oh. Ryan didn't grow up in church. No, he definitely didn't. But he's learned to fold his arms. Um, no, but, but, but despite having an uh, entertain me, take care of me attitude, despite all of that, whether you grew up in church or despite just the absolute toxic waste dump of wickedness that spewed forth from my life, every which way I turned, everything that I touched and polluted with any interaction that, that I had in my life, despite all of that, I've got a Jesus that was looking at me with eyes of love, excited to be able to redeem me, to redeem you. Look into this. Look into it more deeply. I would encourage you, go back over. You know, Jordan, you still have some kind of downtime between now and, and the rest of uh, the, the holiday season right now. Take this downtime. And as Jesus says, I have told you these things. I think decide with someone else today what these things are and that you will take a deeper look into these things. And my life to the full challenge is to deeply consider these things so that your joy could be complete, that you will top off joy during this holiday season. Joy just won't be an empty phrase on a, on a Christmas card somewhere, but joy will be your reality because you decided to look even more deeply into these things. Amen. Yeah.